Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. These civilians who were killed in Syria, they don't care how the United States accidentally blew them up. They want to they know how that's, that situation's not going to happen again and how that situation's going to get fixed. They're not worried that it was a drone. They're not worried that it was a manned airplane. If, if some American soldier had ran down the street with a knife, stabbing them all because he believed they were terrorists, it wouldn't change how destructive that is to the overall American strategy. For all the notable successes, like the reported killing of Islamic State's top spokesman, Mohammed Abu al-Adnani, there are misses. Some strikes by the CIA or the Pentagon lead to civilian deaths. This week on War College, we're talking about an issue that hasn't grabbed much attention in the U.S., but civilian deaths have become a central issue for U.S. detractors and allies. You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Jason Fields and Matthew Galt. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields with Reuters. And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Today we're speaking with Joseph Trevithick about one of our favorite topics, uh, which is drone strikes. And... This week, I think it's particularly current because one of Islamic State's founding members, or at least that's uh, what is being said about him, was recently killed in a strike. His name is Abu Muhammad al-Adnani, and he's someone that has been on the wanted list for quite some time. So, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about what just happened, Um, and we can sort of take it from there? Yeah, definitely. The strike was important in no small part because uh, Al-Adnani was not, not just uh, considered to be a founding member, but he was also one of the group's primary spokespeople and uh, largely believed to be sort of coordinating a lot of their uh, public relations, which Islamic State has become very known for its really slick media presentations and other uh, outreach, both locally and internationally, which present the group as a being, you know, more of an actual state, a parallel uh, sort of government, you know, they, they show that they're running cities and, and, you know, running social services as well as having a freestanding army and the rest of it and that they, you know, conduct real military operations. They present this very effective public face. So taking out Al-Adnani was at least described by the Pentagon as a very significant piece of, you know, significant operation against the group in terms of taking out their uh, 
not only their ability to to plan their their military operations and their terrorist operations, but just to disable the group's ability to present its public face positively uh, in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. Now, are we sure that the Pentagon took him out? I know there's some question about that. The issue of always is that a, a lot of the the assessment of these strikes, of course, is done um, by reviewing the the footage from the cameras on the drones or other aircraft in the area, and it can be very difficult to determine just who you're hitting, which has long been one of the major criticisms of all all of this uh, these kind of targeted strikes. So the United States believes with a high degree of certainty that they've killed him but they've been wrong in the past and there's also you know a a sort of ongoing i'd say kerfuffle with the russians about who was actually responsible for the strike that killed adnani or is believed to have killed adnani the russians claimed that they had that they had actually killed him in in a strike and the united states has dismissed that entirely called it a joke i think one Pentagon official uh, called it a joke when talking to Reuters, and the United States said that it had no information on any Russian strikes in the area at that time and date. The Russians then claimed that since the United States wasn't privy necessarily to all of its operations, you know, basically, how could you know? And they, they said a, put a very snarky statement online, at least through their Facebook page and probably elsewhere, basically asking where you know where the united states could possibly be getting its information on what they're doing in syria since you know they're not in the russian command center well so aside from that there's also been adnani but a lot of civilians have recently been reported killed not just uh, by the united states but by a lot of the other forces that are operating in the region but there was a report a little while ago from the United States discussing the actual number of civilian casualties from all of these, I was going to say drone campaigns, but I know that actually it's not always drones. Sometimes the strikes are actually carried out by aircraft. But I think that report was kind of crucial. Can we talk about that? Yeah. uh, Earlier this year, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence released the first ever official tally of strikes, targeted strikes, in what it referred to as areas outside active hostilities, which actually specifically does not include Iraq and Syria and this current campaign against Islamic State in those countries. The report was exceedingly vague on what areas it actually covered. Most people assume that it referred to Yemen and Pakistan and possibly some other locations that are believed to be outside of this, what is generally understood to be these areas of of traditional military operations like Iraq and Afghanistan. But again, it it was not clear and it was not defined. It It was vaguely outlined, but there were no, there were only specific countries that it didn't cover that were included, uh, specifically Iraq and Syria. And the numbers that were provided for both total strikes, total numbers of terrorists killed, and total number, or suspect, I should say suspected terrorists killed, and total numbers of innocent civilians caught in the crossfire were seemed low, seemed both low and to be 
rather vague in of themselves. The casualty figures and the uh, kill figures were both displayed as ranges rather than specific numbers, indicating that even the Pentagon didn't know for sure, based on the information they had available to them, how many terrorists they had actually killed and how many civilians had actually been killed. They could only give a, a broad range separated by dozens of individuals in both cases. So on July 1st, America's Office of Director of National Intelligence released a report detailing new information about the drone program. So what's in the report, Joe? Well, first, it's important to point out that we understand it to be about drone strikes, but that's not ever specifically said. It, it just says strikes. The actual amount of data in this three-page report, which has been years in the making, uh, is is basically the numbers you can fit them inside a tweet. There's there's very little actual data and very little actual specifics and a whole ton of caveats about basically what this data may or may not mean and and sort of what it does and doesn't cover. Sort of it's it's actually surprisingly vague for how big a deal they they wanted it to be and it you know it it lists the total number of as they put it, strikes against terrorist targets outside areas of active hostilities, a zone never defined against targets who are never defined. And that they give a number for that. It's 473 of these strikes by either drones or manned aircraft or some combination thereof. And then they give a total number of combatant deaths um, that, that being deaths of supposed terrorists. And then they give a total number of non-combatant deaths, that is to say, anyone unfortunate enough to be caught uh, in the strike who wasn't the target. And both of those, those other numbers are given as a range. Um, there is no set number, and, and the range is uh, quite large in both cases. Combatant deaths is 2,372 to 2,581, two amazingly specific numbers that are quite, quite, you know, widely apart here. And non-combatant deaths are 60, between 64 and 116. Again, a, a very large gap in the official numbers. This is, this is what they determined based on the information available to them. All right. So we're looking at these civilian casualties, I think, is specifically what jumps out at a lot of people is there any are there any other third parties that are tracking civilian casualties from uavs yes there's a number of groups tracking uh civilian casualties human rights watch amnesty international and other projects dealing just with the drone war in general well and uh let's i think it's safe to say that these numbers don't really agree right well, like I said, you know, the numbers, the, the official government tally doesn't agree with those independent numbers. They're, they're widely different. Uh, the, the numbers of civilian casualties reported by independent groups is exponentially higher. And while they also give a range, they, their numbers are hundreds rather than maybe just over a hundred. But it's also important to point out that, that the government numbers don't agree with themselves. You know, they, it's a range. It's not. It's not a set number. They could only 
uh, guesstimate based on the information available to them. Which is, I feel like the scarier thing is that they don't they don't even know how many civilians they've killed. I doesn't that seem, in a sense, not just plausible, but maybe in some sense inevitable, in that they are not going into these zones themselves. I'm talking about like any members of the military or government to actually count bodies, right? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the the whole purpose of these strikes is to get at militants, terrorists, what have you, that are in places that are otherwise difficult to get to. Um, the U.S. government, while it has, has offered very few details on how it targets people and how it decides on these targets, has made it very clear that it tries its best, and we can you know debate that point, but it tries its best to not use these strikes if there is an actual viable opportunity to capture the target which apparently doesn't happen very often. All right, so thinking about that, what happened in Syria recently? There was a pretty nasty drone strike, correct? It was a was it was it a drone strike or was the I mean it was an airstrike in Mabij, you're talking Mambij. Yeah, where again which is there's in, a, a Syria, right? Which is yeah. and it's near uh, it's actually been a target now. Uh it's a trying to cut off Islamic State's supply lines, if I remember right. Right, it's it's uh, near the de facto. I believe it's near the de facto capital, uh, the Islamic State's de facto capital in Raqqa. the The idea is that it's a it's another strategic point for them, and it's been a been a target. It's continued to be a target. In fact, they've American-like coalition has hit Mumbij again, and they are investigating a new. A potentially credible allegation of civilian casualties in the latest strikes as well. But again, the the government's view, the U.S. government's view on how many people were potentially killed in the initial strike that is now formally under investigation is much lower than that of uh, independent monitoring groups um, in Syria and outside Syria, such as the uh, Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. Are there different agendas behind the different numbers? I mean, I can see how the United States, of course, doesn't want to have, you know, wants to have as small numbers of civilian casualties as possible. And that's actually, I think it's fair to say that's probably the actual goal as well. It's not just to report fewer number, you know, lower numbers, but to probably, I mean, I would think it's fair to say they're not actually trying to kill civilians. Um, so, but for something like Human Rights Watch, is there any kind of motivation behind the, uh, you know, uh, getting at the truth or any, I mean, is there any kind of agenda there that you know about? I think personally that there is a, a pacifism agenda. I don't know, I'm not sure maybe agenda isn't the right word, but groups like Human Rights Watch are generally against war and are very, very inclined to point out the, the civilian tolls in war and basically the idea that if civilian casualties are an inevitable cost of war, then the objective should be to end war. And that's a laudable goal. I personally do not necessarily think it's particularly realistic, um, but I think if there, if there is anything that could be described as an agenda, uh, that is their agenda. It, it, in my opinion, may be biased against the United States, because the United States is the most transparent, you know, people can say that they're not, you know, the United States is not 
100% transparent. And there's a lot of really important steps they could make to be more transparent and more accountable. But compared to, say, the Russians, who don't talk about basically the their airstrikes at all beyond saying we do them and we're winning... Um, the United States says, you know, we've attacked these areas, we've killed this many people, we've destroyed all these targets, you know, these are how many bombs we dropped, this is what we're doing, here's some strike footage of what we're doing. Um, it's definitely easier for human rights groups and NGOs to question those statistics and, and really pick them apart, which, you know, they definitely should do, but it, it makes it easier to sort of focus on American strikes rather than even other Western countries that, that don't report nearly as much detail about their uh, participation in the campaign against Islamic State. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. All right, I want to I want to switch tracks just a little bit then because we we talk a lot of and we've talked quite a bit about the the ethics and the morality of, of targeted killings in the drone program what we don't talk a lot about i think is its effectiveness do we have any numbers about that does this kind of warfare work so the georgetown public policy end of things at georgetown university they recently published a study that was widely reported as, as proving that drone strikes in Pakistan have not worked. That's actually not what the study said. The study basically said that there was a correlation between drone strikes and terrorist retaliation, i.e. that if there was a drone strike in that province, there was very likely to be a terrorist attack within the next so many months. And they said that there was an interesting correlation between those two and called for additional research. And a lot sort of actually a lot of people are are actually saying, despite what it gets reported as, is that they're calling for additional research because it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to do to do any kind of real, you know, on the ground studying of exactly what's going on in a lot of these places because they are so dangerous. And studies in Pakistan have repeatedly shown that, Educated people in Pakistan are generally against drone strikes. People living in the northwest frontier provinces who don't like the terrorists encroaching on their daily life actually don't really care that much. 
there have been studies like this recent one that, that shows a, a correlation between the terrorists being more violent and drone strikes. But again, that doesn't take into any account uh, whether Pakistani military strikes, because the Pakistani government flies their own airstrikes and launches their own counterterrorism operations on the ground, which again have been linked to generating uh, significant numbers of refugees, significant numbers of civilian deaths, and uh, significant amounts of terrorist retaliation. And so there are all sorts of uh, factors at play here. I am glad that, that I do not have to, to try and pick it all apart because it, it is an, an amazing morass of data um, and people debate about what are, what are the factors that are most important. And uh, like I said, I, I don't think we've come to a place where there is a, a conclusion about the debate about, you know, whether decapitating, you know, this idea of decapitating terrorist organizations by knocking out their their leadership works. We've been doing it for some time, but there's, you know, there's not a lot of information on, on how that policy is implemented either. So we don't know if the policy is ineffective because it's ineffective inherently or because it's not being done correctly. I mean, there's, there's so much we don't know. What do we actually mean by effective? I mean, because... I would, it would seem to me that it's not just the number of incidents, you know, going up or down by some percentage. I mean, it's, it's talking about, I mean, the success I think that the United States is looking for, the West is looking for, is for the threat of terrorism or attacks to go down, right? And it doesn't seem that these strikes have really had any true impact on that. Well, the existential threat still lingers as a, as a political consideration, as a domestic political consideration. One, one should realize that in the United States, unlike uh, a number of our European allies, we have actually done a pretty good job in avoiding spectacular terrorist attacks since 9-11. Um, there have been a number of, of isolated incidents and while horrific and tragic um, have been nowhere near on the scale of uh, the London subway bombings or bombings in Spain at the you know train stations or any of these things uh, that that still do happen. Um, even even the the now apparent regular arrest of terrorist plotters in Germany and such things. I mean we're we're seeing far more expansive networks elsewhere. And so you know again it's how do you define success and uh, it's definitely at the moment, it's a very isolationist definition of success. And I'm not sure that's a good definition of success, but it is important to point out that, that we have not suffered a spectacular terrorist attack since, since September 11th, 2001. Um, and while there is an important amount of, of uh, discussion to be had about whether counterterrorism operations are responsible for that, there, you know, it is a fact that has to be included in the discussion. So, you know, it's, it's a, again, it's a debate. And it, that's interesting. I mean, and I think it sounds like a really reasonable definition of success, which is to keep as many people safe as much as possible. And it does, though, still leave open the question to me of, you know, is this a policy that leads to ultimate success? You know, to Al Qaeda saying, you know, we're going to throw in the towel, or that um, you know, negotiations really need to start up. It, it seems like it. It sounds like what we're talking about is um, 
what might even be a very successful but sort of holding, you know, pattern, right? Well, that's that's exactly what the current strategy seems to be. And a lot of people very rightly point out that what that effectively means is that you've unfortunately more or less condemned a certain portion of the world to near constant conflict. And that's not good. Iraq and its neighbors, I'm sure, do not feel that that they are uh, better off for this. And uh, the people of Pakistan and Afghanistan, no doubt, do not feel broadly that they are better off for any of this, even if they agree that they would like to, to kill all these terrorists. I mean, I don't think I don't think that in a lot of these places you would find that there is universal support for the kind of people that we're killing. There may be pockets of support. And in Iraq, the government in Baghdad was so awful that initially Islamic State was seen as a viable alternative, which again is yet another portion of the debate to consider that you know, Islamic State's rise was in no small part because of the ineffectiveness of the government in Baghdad to be there for its people. So there, there are there are definitely these these things to consider. But the idea that you're going to kill enough terrorists for them to go away ever, forever is absurd, just patently absurd. Um, that's just never going to happen. And secondly, what do you what would you ever you know, people talk a lot about basically trying to extricate ourselves from Afghanistan, for instance, by sitting down and negotiating with these groups without ever basically explaining what points there are between the United States and those groups to negotiate. I don't know. I've, I've never understood what uh, officials in Washington have to gain by negotiating with the Taliban. There, there's no, there's no policy issues that are directly, you know, the, the issue between Washington and the Taliban is please stop attacking our troops. And the Taliban's position is fine. Take your troops out of our country. Like, you know, they, they, they have a very simple solution to that problem. They're like, you know, you don't need to be here. This isn't your problem. You can leave anytime you'd like. Our beef is with the government in Kabul, you know, and nego- no, negotiating some sort of deal. And this was, you know, this is this is a problem that, that, that transcends terrorism. This is a problem of negotiating the future of the Vietnams. And when the United States sat down to negotiate with the parties and the South Vietnamese said, hey, these are our these are our grievances. This is what we'd like. The United States said, we're trying to extricate ourselves from the situation. We need something that that looks like peace, at least for the next 18 months. Sit over there and shut up about it. And they were not happy. You know, and I don't think the government in Kabul is particularly happy about basically being negotiated for with its enemies. Well, I mean, it is a lot of, I I hate the word treasure, but, you know, it's used, I mean, lives and treasure that have been spent in order to create a different vision of Afghanistan. I mean, it it does seem unsurprising that the United States doesn't want to leave 13 years later at this point, and uh, have things revert to exactly the status quo that they went in to disrupt. Oh, no, without a doubt. But again, it's, it's if the United States were to cut a deal tomorrow that, with the Taliban that says, you will not change the status quo after we leave, the Taliban would be like, sure. And then that paper would be 
would be worth less than what it's, you know, that, that treaty would be worth less than what it's printed on the day American troops leave because they're not there anymore. And, and the, and the, and the deal does not, unless the deal is between the Afghan government and the Taliban, the Taliban has no, no responsibility to the Afghan government to, to, to not, not attack them and not to, not to basically interpret you know the understanding of its deal with the United States in its own way. I mean, we we did work with the Taliban, you know, as as the leaders of Afghanistan until that became politically untenable. I mean, so it, it's not like they they don't understand that as long as things are are more or less stable that they can't work with the United States. They've been to Washington. Those guys those guys know what this looks like. This this isn't new to them. So to bring it back to drones, um, yeah, I guess it sort of shows whatever the numbers, you know, the uh, civilians killed, which obviously is problematic in terms of, well, everything, especially including the, the individuals involved. But it, it does sound like drones, no matter what, are just such a small part of the picture, even though that it's something that is uh, so central in, in um, the American way of war. I like to I like to say all the time that it's the policy, not the platform. Okay, drone strikes are one part of a broad idea of containing terrorism abroad, and drones are a you know if you want to believe that that strategy isn't working, then drones are a symptom of the of the problem because it's because it's how the because it's how the strategy is implemented. They are not. They are not inherently problematic on their own. You know, the, the you know the drone strike is a tool of of what could be phrased as a as a bad or incoherent policy, you know, or a schizophrenic policy. It it would be just as damning if you know, like we've we've seen in the past, if you used manned aircraft to try and from afar have the same impact in containing terrorism. And again, you sort of risk losing that that war, you know, on the ideology, you know, on the ideological level, and on the, you know, basically presenting a functional alternative. Uh, you know, the the civilians who were killed in Syria, they don't care how the United States accidentally blew them up. They want to they want to know how that that situation's not going to happen again, and how that situation's going to get fixed. They're not worried that it was a drone. They're not worried that it was a manned airplane. If if some American soldier had ran down the street with a knife, stabbing them all because he believed they were terrorists, you know, a thing we've more or less seen happen in Afghanistan that one time with the massacre of Afghan civilians um, outside a, a U.S. military facility there, you know, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't change how destructive that is to the overall American strategy. And so there, there's an issue there. And, and people are, are perfectly welcome to debate whether the distance offered by drones and the relative safety to American soldiers allowed by drones makes it more likely that we're going to use drones to do these things and do them more recklessly. But it's, it's not, it's still then that, that there's been no demand for firm policies in place to prevent that from being the case because you could demand policies that basically say yeah we know we have these options but you still have to be extremely discerning about how you use them and i think we you know we're seeing that debate 
in the United States domestically after what happened recently in Dallas, where a police department took a bomb disposal robot and rigged up an explosive and blew up a uh, person who had been shooting at police officers and civilians in downtown Dallas. And again, you know, people are, are, are were immediately like, oh my God, is this the future of American policing? You know, like we've, we've left the door open for this. It's like, no, you leave the door open for this by not immediately implementing policies that say, here are the extreme situations where you would, would ever think about doing this. Like, here's the checklist of everything that needs to happen before you do this. And making sure that that is codified and broadly understood. Because again, it's about the policy, not the platform. You know, we've already seen problems with SWAT teams, but it's not that SWAT teams are the problem. It's the fact that police have SWAT teams and then they feel the need to use them for everything. And when you say problem, do you mean overly forceful responses to provocation or to crime? That That's kind of what you're talking about? Right. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an over-response that, that magnifies... Uh, errors. So you've seen SWAT teams deliver no-knock warrants to the wrong house. Okay, now if a, if a uniformed police officer delivers a warrant to the wrong house, he goes next door and delivers it to the right house. If a SWAT team delivers a no-knock warrant to the wrong house, you know, they give they give an old woman a heart attack. They shoot somebody's dog. Like, I mean, there's there are very serious issues that happen. And again, it's, you know, you've, we've seen a rise in the use of SWAT teams and the rise in the use of SWAT teams and no-knock warrants for what are essentially nonviolent crimes. And that's a problem. And, and, and people are saying, man, we need to like get rid of SWAT teams. It's like, well, the first thing you need to do is set very clear ground rules about like what kind of situation you get to use your SWAT team. That would, that would be a really good first step. You know, you could, you could end a lot of this, this uh, concern about militarized policing by saying you don't get to roll that out anytime you want you don't get to to pull your your bearcat armored trucks out for anything at all you know you have you have to have a very clear reason to do this you know because that's the thing it's, if you're going to complain about having those things makes people more likely to use them it's like well what a first step would then be to implement rules to prevent that from happening i mean that's that's a thing that can be done and you see a similar thing has happened with drones. We have this we we have this new weapon. Decided we needed to use it and weren't great about setting up policy positions. Well, we again, you know, with drones, we still really don't know what the policy positions are. I would I would hazard to guess that there there is a lot of that because what you what we've seen in leaked documents is that the the immense amount of, of steps to get a to get a drone strike authorized, at least on the military side of things. You know, it has to go through a lot of people, but it still originates very close to the to the target. You know, somebody basically develops that. You know, people say, well, the you know the president has to sign off on these things because of the the concerns involved. That's true, but there's still people on the ground developing those targets and people very close to the to the scene. You know, trying to compile dossiers on potential terrorists and the rest of the things. Um, and we don't know basically if what kind of uh, criteria, if any, is implemented to say this person is serious enough to warrant a drone strike and whether you could you could dial that back a bit and say really don't need to do this right now against 
this person or this person or you know it's it's this what what constitutes an imminent threat and we really we still don't know you know the the united states uh, justifies this by saying these people are imminent threats but offers no definition of an imminent threat we don't we don't know what imminent means and that's a that's an important term of art there that, that goes undefined it's uh, it's interesting to think about it in terms of policies as opposed to in terms of uh, destruction in a sense um, do you think that there will ever come a time that we will have this kind of information in the public uh, around arena or do you think that you know is the argument that even having this information about what constitutes an imminent threat, do you think there's any problem with having that information out there? What, what, what's the hesitation about letting people know what an imminent threat is? I'm sure the, the government's position is that releasing any kind of information on the criteria for a strike would give these potential targets an opportunity to change their daily routine so that they don't stand out. You know, it's a it's a rules of engagement response. We don't release our rules of engagement because then we worry that our opponents will use those against us. You know, they will know what we can and cannot do. And, you know, there, there's there's some merit to that argument. But there doesn't even seem to be a there's no reports of debate in a classified setting by our elected officials who are cleared to have those conversations. Because, I mean, our, our elected officials in Congress are, you know, many of them are part of the people who are in charge of developing these policies. They sit on committees and they grill the other people, you know, in the intelligence community and in the Pentagon who are on the other side developing these policies. And they, and they have back some back and forth discussions with them behind closed doors in a classified setting you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen, uh, at least not not in the title of the classified hearing, but basically a classified hearing by the you know Senate Committee on Intelligence or the Senate Armed Services Committee on just on what an imminent threat is. You know, to sit down and basically demand that the uh, the office of the Director of National Intelligence basically turn over a stack of documents that basically says, here, look. This is exactly how we define, you know, and I'm sure they've had these discussions, but I think it would give the American people a lot more confidence to basically believe it when they say that their elected officials have looked at, at the criteria and have analyzed the criteria if we if we believe that they were actually actively having these kind of, of very broad debates on on this policy rather than, you know, very narrow debates on sort of the legal justifications for hitting individual targets and all these other things, because we have seen that. But again, it's it's very specific. And, you know, because we, we know they're, they're capable of having these these deep, drawn-out conversations. The, the uh, continuing discussions about the, you know, enhanced interrogation techniques at Guantanamo Bay show that there is a, there is a capacity for, for honest debate, even in a non-transparent setting, about what's actually going on and, and how the U.S. government is... is treating terrorists so we, we do know it can happen it's it's complicated but you know it's, so it's one wonders why that isn't happening more and i and i don't know because again it's it's all it's also wrapped up in in these layers of secrecy every study that comes out about this more or less concludes that there's a need for more data and i am in, in a complete agreement with that 
you know, we, we need to do more research and people need to have more, more discussions and, and more exchange just of the, of the details and be willing to, you know, talk about things firstly as correlation and not causation. Well, and having the conversations here makes it so that it's not just something that's happening across the water. And I think that's important. Right. Definitely. It's a debate that Americans need to have because how we wage war is an immensely important topic, regardless of whether you believe that war should end. Joe, thank you again so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again really soon. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's show. If you liked it, check out our archive on SoundCloud and iTunes. In our first year, we've covered everything from the birth of the machine gun to the conflict in the South China Sea. We also love new subscribers and old ones. We're reachable via Twitter. You can find us at at war underscore college. And speaking of Twitter, a special thanks this week to user Stilgarian. I'm guessing at the pronunciation. He live tweeted while listening to our episode about aircraft carriers. Awesome. War College was created by me, Jason Fields, and Craig Hedick. Matthew Galt wrangles the guests, co-hosts the show, and makes life worth living. Our producer this week, as always, is Bethel Hoptek. Every week, she proves it isn't just Horton who can hear the who's. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>